Hello, I'm Philip Brain. And I'm Harry Clennon. And you're listening to Focus Interviews by Spectacles. Today, we'll be talking to a candidate for U.S. Senate in Wisconsin, Dr. Jillian Bettino. She's joining us to talk about healthcare policy, democracy reform, the filibuster, campaign finance, and her dream policy for helping her home state of Wisconsin. Stay tuned. Doctor, how should I call you? Jillian? Doctor? What do you like? Jill is good. Most people just call me Jill. Jillian, either is fine. The doctor thing is for work. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Well, Jill, thanks for talking with us. It's so good to have you. We'll just start it off with a pretty straightforward question. It's a pretty crowded field in Wisconsin for this Senate election. There's a lot of people running. What led you to enter the fray with so many names already out there? So um, I was second to enter the race. Um, Oh, okay. Yeah. So when I entered the race, it it was just, um, you know, Tom Nelson and... You know, we I was obviously aware that it was going to be a, a highly, you know, watched and important race and mm-hmm. that there would be many, many candidates, even when I entered that early. My my reason for entering the race was based on uh, an accumulation of personal experiences and professional experiences uh, where I've been working for about half of my time. Um, professionally over the last 10 years, uh, taking care of women in central Wisconsin. I'm a breast radiologist. And Mm -hmm. uh, so I've divided my time between that and working for a nonprofit organization called Rad Aid International. And that's a group of radiologists and radiology uh, sort of uh, supporting people like technologists Mm -hmm. and nurses and physicists and IT people and all of that. And what we do is we we work globally to bring radiologic services to to countries where there is no healthcare access and particularly no radiologic um, diagnostic gotcha. access. Mm. And I started, um, you know, spending a lot of time over the last ten years in Central and South America as a director within RadAid, and RadAid is a UN affiliate, and um, so that gave me the opportunity to work with the World Health Organization and with the Pan American Health Organization and with ministries of health in mm-hmm. lower middle income countries, also with institutions of um, higher education globally in the US across the country, also in Central and, and South America and um, in Europe. And I started recognizing these really, I think surprising and maybe that's that's embarrassing on some level, but surprising uh, similarities between yeah. the things that I was seeing, you know, in lower middle income countries and yeah. the I was seeing at home. Yeah. So you know, things like I would be in Guyana and and see a patient with advanced breast cancer, you know, with a, a lesion that had eroded through her skin and and you know, metastatic disease things that was not curable and on some level, I knew statistically that that women in lower middle income countries were going to uh, were going to be diagnosed at late stage, mm-hmm. and I started noticing that this was an incredibly common, particularly among our minorities and and people who have poor healthcare access, like insurance obstacles, yeah, um, to have the same kind of problems. And I think that the 
you know, one really big revelatory moment for the, for me. And this was after I had decided that I was going to run, but before I had actually, um, actually uh, declared mm-hmm. was January 6th. And certainly right. throughout my years of uh, being in Nicaragua and in Guyana, I've experienced political volatility and just, you know, feeling vulnerability and a lack of safety while working in those countries uh, because of the political environment. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, the violence that that the people there have suffered so in Guyana, there was an election in March, um, the year before our January 6th experience, so about eight months before that. And that election was called before all the votes were counted, uh, and there was yeah. storming of their governmental buildings and um, and lots of violence surrounding that. And it, and it ended up resulting in a repeat election. And, you know, it was a very volatile, catastrophic time. It, it mm-hmm. compromised our program down there and at my my instinctive feeling at the time was my god thank goodness i'm Amer- i'm american you know we this nonsense would never fly hmm. and you know eight months later we're watching january 6th yeah so it just got to this point where i realized that unintentionally without ever having a political um, career in mind or any sort of political aspirations. My, my goals have always just been to serve yeah. um, people and to help people have better, healthier lives and, and have fair lives and fair access. And I started realizing that, you know, unintentionally, many of my life experiences, knowing how to build teams to achieve really lofty goals um, was was you know just teams of people with different different uh, age, um, different racial backgrounds, different religious backgrounds, political backgrounds. None of that ever mattered. As a matter of fact, I think importantly, we intentionally created and, and included diversity within our teams because um, it helped us address our goal, which was making sure that we had all kinds of folks prepared to provide service for all kinds of folks. Um, so it became mm-hmm. very relevant and clear to me that this is what we need in the United States. And yeah. you can't keep electing the same types of people over and over again, wealthy people with political aspirations that that I think compromise their maybe their integrity and when it comes to actually making decisions that represent the people of the united states definitely Um, and if you continue to do the same thing over and over again and expect a different outcome we we call that insanity so there you go (laughs) (laughs) gotta do something different if we want something different right definitely and you you hit on a bunch of ideas there that we we already planned on discussing, but we'll get to each of them in turn. Harry, why don't you start it off? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think it this sort of flows nicely to the, to the question that I wanted to ask, which is, right, you've, you're talking about a need to elect people from a wide variety of backgrounds, right, including healthcare um, to elected office, because, you know, people who come from different backgrounds have different knowledge that is applicable to the work of government. And I think also, especially healthcare flows nicely, right? Because it's, you know, a form of service to another form of service that involves right, caring for people. And as you said, organizing teams um, and, uh, you know, meeting objectives and stuff like that. Um, and so one thing I wanted to ask about was, right, from your own background as a doctor, I think 
in recent, you know, the past decade, I would say, or decade or more, healthcare policy has sort of dominated our domestic public policy discourse. But sometimes that that conversation is like at a 10,000 foot view where we're talking about, you know, Medicare for all or a public option or shoring up Obamacare. But you have much more localized, actually domestic and international experience as a physician. And so I was wondering, you know, if you're elected or even just as a candidate, how does that experience shape your approach to sort of the healthcare policymaking debate at the national level, but also sort of we, there are these sort of localized elements that, you know, we might be missing in our conversations because we're having these very broad conversations. So I was curious about your thoughts on that. I think it, it definitely has shaped my my position and, and what I feel will work and won't work for the people that live in this country. So, you know, a couple of things. So, so first of all, I would say that the ACA was a tremendous step forward in a mm-hmm. lot of ways. Um, you know, improving the goals of the ACA were, were to include to improve the number of insured Americans. And it, it certainly accomplished that. But in in doing so, you know, again, a number of people lost their insurance at the same time. So I think mm-hmm. we have about 20 million that, that gained insurance and about 6 million that lost insurance. Mm. And just because you have insurance doesn't mean that you've actually addressed right. healthcare accessibility. Yeah. yeah. So we have folks who maybe became insured because of, because of Medicaid expansion, but our Medicaid care provision pool wasn't expanded. So, you know, the, the actual availability of, of, of care providers within that network wasn't expanded to accommodate that. So I, I don't think that that was done well, and it ultimately hasn't allowed us to address healthcare access as it was intended. So that's one thing. Another thing is that because of the nature of the program, lots of folks purchased catastrophic insurance and very high deductibles um, come with that, lots of un- uncovered types of care. Mm-hmm. And you know, so that also is an obstacle to healthcare and and you know, accessibility that I think was unintended. There there are patients that come in and tell me that. They are. They don't have a lump in their breast, and yet I look on their mammogram. There's no way that they don't know that they have a lump in their breast. There, there's an enormous mass there, uh, but they tell me that because their healthcare uh, will not provide them with a screening mammogram. It will only provide them with a diagnostic mammogram. And then I have patients oh. who tell me the opposite for the opposite reasons. I mean, there's not. There's like there's not a great benchmark and and a great set of requirements and guidelines that that permeate all of the needs of preventative health care. And I think that's another really, really important misfire. Currently, we spend a lot of money at the end of life on chronic disease. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, you know, hypertension, cardiovascular mm-hmm. disease, um, stroke, diabetes, even mental health care, you know, addiction care, a lot of these things are the consequence of not having had adequate preventative health services. Right. Our current system is not really set up to incentivize providers or healthcare systems to focus on preventative health care. And because of that, we have a less healthy population and, and healthcare is more expensive. So I think I think that when we design a healthcare system that works, 
We really need to bolster our preventative health services and a system that works will be one with no cracks in it um, so that you know right. we don't have everybody in, nobody left out that kind of thought. So we're not saying, oh, if you're you know, a kid whose parents make enough money to not be um, eligible for, you know, certain types of healthcare coverage, whether it's CHIP or Medicaid or whatever, what have you, but they don't make enough money to actually be able to afford decent healthcare. Well, then that kid is uncovered. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. you know, those are the kind of things that we can't have. We can't have tribal nations who are not being reimbursed um, at an appropriate level. And I hear that all the time when I visit the tribal nations in Wisconsin. Um, we can't have veterans who can't get the mental health care services that they need, or just people in rural America who can't get the health care services that they need. Uh, I really think we need to to look at the problems that folks are facing on a day-to-day basis, the actual problems that folks live with. And this is what I see. We need to focus on preventative health care mm-hmm. and we need to make certain that nobody is left out. Mm. Well, that answer in itself, I think, goes a long way, right? I mean, I, I was really impressed by the, the the level of detail and understanding, both anecdotal and in terms of the bigger picture that you that you brought to the answer. So that that shows in itself the value of, of, of bringing people um, or electing people who have sort of disparate experiences in life and from healthcare and in other fields, right? Um, not just the same, you know, lawyers after lawyers after lawyers and businessmen after <laughs> businessmen after businessmen. So I, I, that was a very impressive answer. Thank you. I think you. You talk out there a lot about the importance of sort of reforming the institutions and systems we've got. And the section on your website, you know, when I was taking a look at, you know, what are your stances and all these things, section on your website that really caught my eye was really caught both our eyes, is on democracy reform. Not least because it doesn't seem like any of the other campaign websites we looked at for the Senate for the U.S. Senate in Wisconsin seem to have equivalent sections, or a lot of them don't even have anything on their policies at all. Um, but democracy reform to us is obviously important. It's everything we do at Spectacles. It's like, how is democracy doing right now? Not just policy, but like, how's the system of government performing? So why is democracy reform important to you? And in your mind, does democratic health come first or do people need something besides democracy to vote for? I mean, policies in particular. That's an interesting question. So, you know, I think that most Americans, at least of my my generation and older, and I'm, I'm 51, really have been, um, I think, Sort of raised in an in a, um, atmosphere of celebrating the beauty of, you know, uh, a free country and a democratic country. And, and you know, in this never-ending war kind of era that, that I've grown up in, um, allegiance to the flag and, you know, the, the principles of being American, our constitution, are enough for a lot of people, a lot of people. But the thing is that, you know, we are a multi-generational country. Every, everyone around the world lives with younger and older folks. And, and so there are different things that will bring us to the table. And I think for younger people, um, 
it needs to be policy. And I think that there is policy around which every American can rally. And, you know, a lot of that is is kind of included in the conversation of our constitution, you know, equal rights and, and um, equal protection under the law and, you know, the land of the free. So our, our freedom of speech and, um, and some people would argue, you know, even our, our right to, to bear arms. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that there's sort of different ways to approach it depending on who you're talking to. And, you know, my kids who are, um, range in age from 15 to 26, probably are less passionate about the specifics of the Constitution and more passionate about human rights and justice and fairness. Mm-hmm. But as a person who's 50, I believe that human rights, justice, and fairness are in, are um, covered within our, our Constitution, right. or at least were intended to be, perhaps not... Uh, not by the founding fathers who were, you know, some of them were slave owners. So obviously there are some, some serious uh, issues to be considered, but I think that we can look at our constitution through a more, um, a more, uh, you know, today's version lens and it still, it still works. Um, So I would say both. Okay. I mean, yeah, I think that, I think that makes a lot of sense. It does sort of come depending on the person, what's important. I would agree with the sentiment that you expressed there toward the end. I think that's pretty key to what Spectacles is, stands for, and believes that, you know, the issues are important, but ultimately democracy is core to those issues. I mean, you can't do human rights without a democracy. Right. Or that when they, you know, properly done, they both go hand in hand, I think. Properly. Yeah. That's a great way of saying it. Yeah. 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 Um, so I also just to get to get a little bit more into specifics, you mentioned on your website that the, you know, the Voting Rights Act is critical to preserving democratic functioning. And I'm sure you were paying attention to the news yesterday. Things are not looking so good for the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act due to the filibuster, which maybe we'll talk about in a second. But I was just, you know, what what would that legislation achieve from your perspective if, you know, either in this Congress or in the next, of which you may be a part, what would that legislation achieve? Um, what would it have achieved that's so important right now? So uh, it is, I mean, it's of utmost importance right now. Um, yesterday, I actually participated with UNPAC in a, in a you know, solidarity 24-hour hunger strike to you know to show my my support of what of what unpack is doing and and trying to force senator cinema and mansion to get on board with some of the changes that need to be made in order to to um, promote and pass the um, voting rights acts whether you're talking about the freedom to vote or the john lewis mm-hmm. or um uh, you know or the um the other one's slipping my mind right now, but I'll, there's a lot of overlap in those in those acts. And mm-hmm. so, right. I mean, ultimately, this is not a democracy if we cannot vote, if every person yeah. in this country cannot vote. And I think that our our right to vote is being attacked very intentionally, un, unquestionably, very intentionally attacked with the goal of, you know, old white guys, white supremacists, basically staying in control of the direction of this country. Um, and it and yeah. surfaces in all sorts of ways from gerrymandering 
to, you know, um, prohibiting access to the ballot right here in Wisconsin. Yesterday, we had a judge um, on the east side of the uh, state determine that um, that absentee ballot drop boxes were were going to be illegal in the state. I of heard of, yeah, I heard about that. Jeez. So this is, you know, while I'm on my 23rd hour of not eating anything, <laughs> I'm thinking, wow, we are swimming upstream. Um, but yeah. yeah, I mean, the, these are the things we need to make sure that I would love it if, if my son, when he turned 18, did not just get a notice that he was now, um, you know, eligible for the draft, but that he was automatically yeah. registered to vote. Right. Um, so we need to do all of those sorts of things. It needs to be a national holiday. Um, we need to make sure that people, there's automatic voter registration. We need to make sure that there are not obstacles to the ballot based on ID requirements that are intentionally, you know, discouraging and, and I think manipulated to keep certain folks away from the ballot box. Right. right. And, and we need to make, you know, state legislation that's anti-voter right illegal. Um, we need to make sure that elderly and disabled people have um, access to the ballot box. We need to make sure that people who are not living in the country can also vote. Uh, there's there's so much that needs to be done there. You know, on top of that, I think that in sort of a, you know, a, a, well, a similar conversation, just making sure that up and down the ballot in the, in the smaller districts and um, within, you know, our, our congressional districts and also our, our local voting districts that those laws are honored. So it needs to be a comprehensive mm-hmm. overhaul. And that's the only way that we can really call ourselves a, a democracy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's going to change. It'll change the face of in the course of, of this country, because ultimately um, democratic principles, the ones that I stand for and that you stand for, are um, are held highly by the majority of the country. And it, right. it's just a matter of gerrymandering and voter suppression that is um, controlling the direction of things right now. Right. And it's it's so often that those most basic requirements, like just being able to vote, are the things that we most often take for granted and can lose sight of when some uh, not super great people get in charge and they change things and we're not really paying attention. And it happens too often. But on that note, you know, talking about these two bills, and I think on the 23rd hour of not eating th- anything, Jill, you can be forgiven for not remembering the name of one one bill. Um, <laughs> but on, on that note of talking about those two bills, you also point on your website to the filibuster and it, its elimination as a critical element of democracy reform. Uh, sort of curious about the reasoning here. A lot of Democrats lately have called for its abolition basically for the sake of these voting rights bills. Um, in your mind, is that enough or do you feel like there are bigger reasons beyond these two bills that further justify or further necessitate even uh, getting rid of the filibuster? Um, I think there are reasons beyond. Um, I was listening to Kristen Cinema explain yesterday why she was not going to support the filibuster. It was bizarre listening to her, actually. She was saying that she did support the Freedom to Vote Act, but yeah. didn't support the filibuster. Well, when she knows quite clearly that 
not supporting the filibuster will result in not passing the Freedom to Vote Act. Um, right. So, you know, what what struck me in listening to her is that she's talking about about coming together, about reaching, about bipartisanship, about you know mending the the, the tears and the and the fabric of our country and the um, deep divisions that we face. She's talking about it as if we have time, and we do not have time. <laughs> so right. We we don't have time when in regards to our voting rights. Um, you know, the midterm elections are coming up. We need to protect that vote. We need to make sure that everybody that that um, is is allowed to vote does vote and can vote and that their vote is counted and that the integrity of the election. This is sort of a separate but equally important discussion. Yeah. Not only do people need to have access, but then the vote needs to be secure so that it can't be reversed. And that's going to be, you know, state and federal um laws that that address the security of the popular vote um then mm -hmm. there's always the question of the electoral college and um you know we don't have time for voting rights but we also don't have time for the climate crisis um and we don't right. have, yeah i mean what right now in this country um uh, i think it's becoming people are very slowly starting to turn the bend and maybe having to individually face results of the climate crisis so that maybe it's actually making sense i don't know why people have to endure it personally before it matters to them but um globally obviously we're in as the mommy and me would say deep doo-doo. I mean, we, we have a major <laughs> problem in our, um, in our future and we're facing it yeah. right now and we have to address that. And that is yeah. going to mean keeping fossil fuels in the ground is going to mean things like, you know, carbon fee and dividend, and it's going to mean 100% renewable energy infrastructure, rebuild enormous investment in, in our future. Um, and we're not going to get that done if we if we still have this filibuster in place because of, you know, because of all the dark money and the other um, controlling factors out there. We have to have the filibuster out of the way. And it's a risk. I mean, if we look back in history, we recognize that Democrats have also utilized the filibuster to do things like protect a woman's right to make her own medical Definitely. decisions. Mm -hmm. But we don't have time. We don't have another 10 or 20 years to be fussing around not making progress on these urgent issues. Our democracy will not survive if we don't have voting rights and our planet will not survive if we're not addressing climate change or climate crisis. Yeah, I mean, couldn't agree more with just about everything there. Uh, one question, I guess, obviously, I mean, it seems so obvious to to people like us that you know, action is critical right now and the filibuster really is standing in the way. I guess I'm curious if you have any thoughts, Jill, about why uh, there's been such hypocrisy in the Senate back and forth. Sometimes Democrats want to get rid of it. Sometimes Republicans want to get rid of it. Both of them at other times don't want to get rid of it, think it's sacred. Um, what's going on there? I mean, do you think there's a reason for that? Well, I... I, the pendulum swims be, swings because of the control of the House and the Senate. Sure. Uh, and so whoever's in control wants, they don't want to deal with this 60 vote requirement. Um, and 
you know, ultimately we are a, a majority rules. That's, that was the whole point of our <laughs> democratic yeah, right. majority rules. So I, I think that, you know, the, that there's a, a, um, a clinging by the minority to this, um, to this arcane rule that obstructs progress. And, and, you know, in part, it might be, you know, a, a fear of, of actually working on a majority rule. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and of course, it's a bumpy road, you know, the pendulum will swing, but I, yeah. I feel like it would encourage more bipartisan, um, you know, collaboration, because those you can't keep swinging from far left to far right, uh, mm-hmm. and actually survive. I think I think that um, there's something to be gained. So I, I still believe that it's the right thing to do, um, even though it is going to create some consternation for everyone. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, I think that's I think that's true. I, my sort of pet theory, which I was uh, my personal pet theory, which I just sort of think is like you've got you also have people like, you know, Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin, and I'm not sure that they actually are interested in being sort of those decisive votes. They're not actually they, they, they seem to like just sitting pretty and not having to necessarily do anything, um, which, you know, uh, maybe that's true. Maybe that's not. But um, that's maybe why uh, that's maybe why we failed this time. Um, but we'll see what happens in the future. So one other one other question I had right on, on that sort of democracy question that democracy issue is that there's this enormous role of, of dark money in politics, which you actually, I think, just just um, uh, mentioned. And, you know, we've written about Citizens United, campaign finance regime, right, all these sorts of things that are going on. Um, and I, I was curious to get your take, right? Is, our, is campaign finance broken? Is it a danger to democracy, good government, accountability? And, you know, what can we do to overcome this problem if it is a problem? Well, absolutely. You know, campaign finance, I'm living it right now. And as a non-career politician, <laughs> I'm shocked to discover yeah. yeah, the advantages that the extremely wealthy have. Mm. And, you know, as, a, as I'm a, in a family where both my husband and I are physicians, we're well compensated, you know, financially secure, but nothing in comparison to some of the people in the race who are you know right. multi 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 millionaires i mean, i think somebody down. who owns a a sports team in wisconsin is running <laughs> also yeah 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 uh, yeah and then you know there's somebody who of course been, he's raised the most money cuz it's probably he's probably it, financed himself it's it's <laughs> yeah of course yeah um and, and there's you know somebody who's married into money um you know, money that is tied to illegal um, criminal financial activity. Oh, so, geez. Yeah, I mean, th- these kind of things are just disturbing that this is yeah. allowed to pass. Um, you know, the people in Wisconsin that are suffering the most and need the most help are not going to be able to donate at nearly the level of the folks who are essentially corporate Democrats. Mm. And, you know, I, I get to see some of their giving histories. I can tell you that they donate to Republican and Democratic um, candidates. So, mm-hmm. you know, th- there are folks out there, my my rural farmers, my, my you know, small family farms, um, p- 
people who are struggling to get by. I mean, our, our tribal nations, for example, where, um, you know, poverty is extremely common and where they, the, there's no, there's no way that they're going to be able to buy their, um, you know, their voice for themselves by, by donating astronomically. So I really, I really feel that that has to be addressed. And of course, yeah. I'm speaking with um, Dan Burke, who is at, I think it's um, Citizen Action, which is a big push for campaign finance reform and is against um, Citizens United, as we all should be. And I asked him, what is the perfect example policy of something that should have been addressed, that every American or, or the vast majority of Americans wants addressed and has not been addressed because of dark money? And he said, without missing a beat, prescription drugs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. No doubt. Right. So, you know, this is, this is something that affects everyone. I, I talk to people all the time. They're like, oh, you know, I, I would donate, but I, I can't because, you know, somebody in my family requires a certain medication and it's just so costly that we can't do yeah. that. And they're on Medicare. You know that, but they can't. They can't afford their drugs. It's a it's so, a vicious cycle. I mean, you you spend so much money that people can't afford to regulate you, and then because people can't afford to regulate you, nobody can uh, can afford to support people who will regulate you. And there you right, go. Right. And and crazy enough, you know, my thought going into this, well, I can probably get support from ideological packs. That's what I was thinking, but. Um, you know, ideological packs. Okay, so Emily's List, who is, you know, for pro-choice women. Well, I mean, who would be a more strong pro-choice woman than myself? Who I've dedicated my life to women's health. Mm. Um, and um, and yet, I didn't financially qualify for that. Mm. Um, 314, oh, really? a science pack. I didn't nearly come close to financially qualifying for that. And these are ideological packs. So I feel like even ideological packs have given up on um, supporting candidates who are, who are not extraordinarily wealthy or extraordinarily well-funded. Wait, so you're saying there's a financial threshold that a candidate has to meet in terms of money that they've raised in order to get the endorsement of one of these packs? Yes. Ooh. Didn't know that. Don't like I'm that. Do not like that. I'm in trouble for <laughs> telling you that, but yes. Yeah. And it was extraordinary, like $250,000, um, like right now. And then one of them even asked, said, you need to $500,000 in the next eight weeks. Well, what do I do? Sell my soul? You know? Jeez. Whew. Yikes. Well, I think on that note, Jill, I think we're sort of near, nearing the end here. I think we've talked a lot about, about a lot of very interesting problems for democracy and areas of interest. But on the subject of that question that you asked that fellow, you know, what's the one thing that would pass if it weren't for campaign finance? Because sometimes these lead to the most interesting conversations. If you were elected to the Senate tomorrow and you could write any kind of bill and you knew it would pass... Uh, to help your home state of Wisconsin, what would it be? What would that policy be? What's your state's biggest need right now? And I'm sort of curious, is it a need that you think is unique to Wisconsin or is it something that's that's needed everywhere, more or less? Yeah, so I think um, 
I think if I could pass a bill tomorrow that would that would benefit every community in Wisconsin, um, it would be Medicare for all, a single payer policy. And and I'll tell you. So first of all, I want to define what I mean by Medicare for all because I mm-hmm. think it's a really Please. poorly it's it's a poor vernacular. Oh, definitely. Um, yeah. So so first of all, what I mean is. We would reduce the cost of healthcare in this country from $3.6 trillion a year to $3 trillion by removing the middleman and removing the redundancy and inefficiency in the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. It means that we would cover everyone. Um, so that means everyone that lives in this country, from the moment their mother decides to have a baby um, to their last breath. So that means a focus on preventative health care, but every other type of health care, surgical care, emergency care, addiction and, and mental health care and end of life care, hospice care, prescription drug care, um, disability, elder care, veteran care, everyone would be covered. And I think that it's important to define that. And, it, and it's important to understand that we would save money um, in this country doing that. It's also important to say that it's compatible with capitalism um, you know, we're, we're about 14th in, in economic freedom globally, and every other country ahead of us has a universal health care program. Mm-hmm. Within the state of Wisconsin, my state, where I know, you know, my um, constituents and the people that, that live in this state and their struggles, whether they are metropolitan, um, suburban, or rural people, health care is the thing that would impact everyone the most. And Mm. and I can say that. So if we look at, for example, the um, Black Lives Matter um, movement and and the international Black Lives Matter um, movement, there there is a um, important statement by the the head of of that movement that that knows that Medicare for all is a solution Mm. to racial um, suffering and to, and to racism. Um, So I'll just take the example of, of black and Brown moms, the, the death rates or the fetal um, maternal mortality rates of this population is extraordinarily high comparable to lower middle income countries. Same with breast cancer in that demographic and and accessible is the most important word accessible quality healthcare would make a world of difference mm. um, you know kids that that could have clean air and um, and clean water that that could be something that is included under a healthcare program no nobody should be you know drinking dirty water lead yeah. lead water um, so these are the the sorts of things that could help us with our our racial issues and then on the other side of the state look at, at farmers. And I take care of farmers all the time who cannot diversify um, or really sustain their farms because they cannot afford healthcare without one of their two parents in a small family farm working outside of the farm to provide healthcare. Um, and then we look at students. You know, people who are graduating from college with enormous student debt, that's another conversation. Mm, I'm yeah. sure you, you can guess where I stand on that one. Um, but, you know, students who are trying to open their own business, be entrepreneurs, you know, buy a home, start a family, choose the job that inspires them the most, and they end up following the healthcare. 
um, and who's going to, you know, and maybe staying in a job where they're not happy or where, where they um, don't have opportunity to grow or they don't have the best wage or whatever because of their health care. Yeah. Um, and then we'll talk about veterans, you know, 45,000 veterans died in the last, I think, seven years due to suicide, mental health care services, addiction care services. Um, that are specialized for our veteran population. And I think the same thing can be said of our tribal nations um, right. who, um, you know, have, and I'm not saying that we need to disrupt the veteran care programming, but we need to make sure that it's properly funding, funded and the same with our tribal nations and our Indian health services. So I think, you know, if you're not healthy, then achieving an education, achieving a future, all of that um, is not possible. So I think healthcare is number one. Hmm. That was a great answer. I think you sort of brought together a lot of different strands, um, and I think that that that's an important way of looking at these issues as being, you know, they're they're interconnected. And I think we're just about ready to wrap up. But I just wanted to ask quickly of, of you at the end, sort of how can people help your campaign if they're interested, um, if they if they've heard what you've had to say, and I'm sure they're going to be impressed when they listen. Uh, but how can they help you? So, um, so you can check out my website. It's BettinoForSenate.us. Um, we have a huge intern program, uh, over 40, probably 45 now interns and volunteers. So if you're interested in anything from data to socials to policy and you want to volunteer, then you can contact us through the website, follow on Facebook, Twitter is very fun place to be right now on Instagram. Mm. Um, and of course, donations are, um, are appreciated because we do not have campaign finance reform yet. And we do have to <laughs> Ivan's dance race. <laughs> well, we'll be sure to link those in the show notes. Mm -hmm. So absolutely. If you're listening and you're interested, it'll be down there. Um, lastly, Jill, just want to say thank you for coming on and, and thank you for running. As you could probably tell from what we do at Spectacles, Harry and I are fairly single issue interested, which is how much do you care about democracy? And it seems like uh, you, you care a lot. And, you know, we appreciate that, that you've put that at the forefront of a lot of the things that you've talked about today. So thanks for that. And thanks for talking with us. It was a real pleasure. And, um, you know, we wish you the best of luck. And maybe we'll be talking again at some point in the future. That would be great. That would be great. And democracy is why I'm running. Good. All right. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Thank you. That's all for today. If you enjoyed, please subscribe and share this episode. You can also follow us on Twitter or TikTok or subscribe to our email newsletter. Got thoughts? Leave a comment on spectacles.news. If you'd like to hear more conversational podcasts, check out Spectacles in Conversation. Links for everything in the show notes. Thanks for tuning in.